Good afternoon or good evening, depending on which coast you reside on. Welcome to Mito Action's Roundtable Discussion with Dr. Alex Durenbaum. My name is Stephanie Harry, and I'm an LCHAD parent and one of the patient support coordinators at Mito Action. We are so excited that you're here with us tonight as Dr. Durenbaum shares with us about some of the positive results from the REN001 Phase 1B LCFAOD study. Today's discussion will be recorded and available on the Mito Action website in the coming days, and as well as on our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. This space is a little different than our traditional expert series. Um, we set this call up as a Zoom meeting, which means that you have both video and audio access. Please take this time to make sure that you're muted and that your video is either on or off, depending on your preference. It's very important that you keep your audio off while you are not speaking. That will give everyone here a bit more of a pleasurable experience. If you do have questions during Dr. Durenbaum's presentation, please put them in the chat and I will ask them after the presentation. If you would like to ask your own question, that's wonderful. Just wait until after the presentation and raise your virtual hand and I'll go ahead and call on you and you can unmute yourself to ask your question. Please remember to keep your questions more general and not about your specific situation. REN001 is still considered an investigational drug and in clinical trials, so each question is carefully considered. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Dr. Alejandro, also known as Alex Durenbaum. Dr. Durenbaum is the Chief Medical Officer of Reneo Pharmaceuticals. Previously, he was Chief Medical Officer at Alicos, where he achieved proof of concept and clinical trials for novel therapeutic antibodies targeting inflammatory cells. He has also served as Chief Medical Officer at Lumina Pharmaceuticals until his acquisition by Shire Pharmaceuticals. Prior to that, Alex worked at Genotech, where he is responsible for the respiratory programs for asthma and cystic fibrosis, and at Biomarin Pharmaceuticals, where he conducted the clinical development of QVAM. He began his career at Chiron Corporation, gaining broad expertise in several areas of drug development, including biologics, small molecules, and vaccines. Alex received his MD from the National Autonomous University in Mexico City. He completed his residency in pediatrics at the University of Texas Health Science Center and held a fellowship in allergy and immunology at Baylor College of Medicine. He maintains an active academic position as clinical professor in pediatrics at Stanford University School of Medicine, where he specializes in allergy and immunology. Let's give a warm welcome to Dr. Durenbaum. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, maybe I should retire after all that work. <laughs> but no, no, it really, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really honored to, to be part of this discussion. And uh, the common thread in the work that I have done has been on working on rare, difficult to treat diseases most of my life. And uh, uh, as you know, fatty acid oxidation defects is, 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 it is a difficult to treat disease, and there is currently no straightforward therapy for it uh, to, to, to fix the problem. So, so we're delighted to be able to do some work in this area. Uh, we have, uh, Reneo, the company where I'm working, uh, has followed a model that, that is pretty unique. Um, uh, the, the investors that founded this company have done this in, in several locations. And, and the whole idea is this, is that we look at medicines that big pharma may have developed for other reasons and for uh, business decisions, sometimes they, they make a decision not to continue to develop the drug. And, and then the nice thing about these drugs is that there is a lot of information available that big pharma has already accumulated on those drugs. And we can see based on the mechanism of action of the medicine, if it may be able to help uh, more difficult to treat and rare disease that big pharma would never be interested in pursuing, but we would do it. So often what we are able to do is to acquire those drugs, to buy those drugs for a very low price because that company is no longer thinking about developing the drug, and because there is a lot known about the drug, it makes it easier and faster for us to be able to bring it 
to the clinic to treat a rare disease. And we've done this in a couple of times in the past, and that was very successful. And the, the, the drug that we are developing at Reneo, REN001, follows that pattern as well. This was a drug that was initially developed by a large company, Novo Nordisk, that is like a giant company in diabetes. And they were developing this drug to lower lipids. But you know, Lipitor and Crestor and all those drugs are far more effective. So they decided to put this in the back burner. And what we realized is that the mechanism by which this drug lowers the lipids is by upregulating, by increasing the metabolism of fats in the body, which is the actual defect that patients with fatty acid oxidation defects have. They're not able to process the fatty acids. And this drug can improve that, 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 that process. The way it works is it really doesn't necessarily fix directly the defect that a, that patients with FAUD has, have, but it actually stimulates a receptor that is close to the nucleus of the cell that activates many genes involved in energy production. So the idea is that when you give this drug, you activate multiple genes in the cell that upregulate, that bring up the production of the genes that are involved in the metabolism in generation of energy in the cell, in the mitochondria, and, and it improves the, that function significantly. So uh, uh, our, our hope is that in, in patients, because the majority of patients, all the patients, in fact, with fatty acid oxidation defects, some have some degree of activity in their enzymes that produce energy through fats, but it's very limited. If we can increase that a little bit, that may make a big difference in the symptoms uh, that patients have and the, the problems that patients have. So we, uh, we, uh, when we acquired, when we bought this drug, this drug had already been tested in humans. There had been three studies done. The first one had been in patients, uh, in healthy volunteers, and the idea was just to see how well these healthy volunteers tolerate the medicine. So this was done in a special unit and healthy people received first one dose at increasing levels and then multiple doses to see how the drug, whether the drug was absorbed into the body, whether it caused any side effects. And all of those studies were, were in all of those studies, the drug behaved very well. Uh, there were no major issues. Then they did a second study where they gave multiple doses for a, for several days to see how much they could lower the lipids, the, the, the fats. And by, by doing that study, we were able to see the point at where, at which the fats drop and the highest dose that is need that, that works best in lowering the fats, because that would be the, the dose you want to use in patients with fatty acid oxidation defects. And the third study they did was a very interesting study, very difficult to do. But what they did is they took healthy people, healthy, they were all men. And they, they said, we, we wanna put, we we're going to, by chance, uh, you know, put you either on medicine or on a placebo, which is a dummy medicine. And, and then we're going to put a brace in one of your legs. And, you know, when, when you, have a brace in your leg, your muscle gets weak and, 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 uh, and, and you lose muscle mass because you're not moving your leg and you're not bearing weight on your leg. So if you have a cast for a couple of weeks, you notice that the leg where the cast was will get a little smaller. So, so, so what they did is they, they took these, these healthy volunteers, half were receiving the medicine, half were receiving the, the placebo and they put a cast on them. A, 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 for a brace for a total of two weeks. And at the end of the two weeks, they saw, okay, how, may, how much muscle strength did the patients lose uh, if they were on medicine or if they were on placebo? And interestingly, the patients who were, uh, who were receiving the medicine, Renault-01, they only lost about six pounds of ability to raise their knee, you know, of weight to, to raise the knee. Whereas the 
the, the, the volunteers that received the placebo had lost about 30 pounds in their ability to raise their legs. So that gave us an idea that, yes, this is a drug that can target the muscle, that can preserve the muscle strength. And we were very excited about that. Also in that study, the doctors did biopsies in the muscle and they looked to see what genes were activated. And they found that the genes that were activated by the drug were the ones that we expect, which are genes that are involved in the metabolism of fats. So that was, that, that was a, a really nice study they did. So when we saw the results of those studies, we said, well, this could be a drug that could potentially help patients with fatty acid oxidation defects. And we were able to finally buy the drug and we started studies, not only in patients with fatty acid oxidation defects, but we did actually three groups of patients. And the, the other group that we are, we, we're working very closely with was a group of patients that have what we call primary mitochondrial myopathy or PMM. And these are patients who have genetic defects in their mitochondria and they don't generate, the mitochondria doesn't generate enough energy through metabolism of fats. And, 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 and they have symptoms that are not unlike the symptoms that we will see in, in some of the, the fatty acid oxidation defect patients. So the first study that we did was what we call an open label study in patients with fatty acid oxidation defects. And uh, um, unfortunately, when we started this study, it was right at the time that the COVID pandemic was starting to come on board. So we were able to enroll, we were planning to enroll about 20, 20 patients or so. And, and as we were starting to enroll patients, around, uh, around the ninth patient that we enrolled, the epidemic hit very hard. So patients were asked to stay at home. And in fact, three of the patients that had started the, the, testing, the, the, the study had to stop participating in the study because they were not allowed to return to the clinic. And because we couldn't monitor them very closely, it was not safe to give them medicine that is investigational, that it's under research. So those three patients had to, to stop participation in the study. One of them did return to the study later on when, when the pandemic kind of cooled a little bit. But the idea was to treat for 12 weeks patients with, with a fatty acid oxidation defects. And we focused primarily on the four main types of fatty acid oxidation defects. There is a fifth one, the medium chain, medium chain disease or MCAT. The, but, but MCAT patients tend to have much less symptoms and it wasn't, a, a, we didn't think it was a good idea to bunch them together with all the other patients that we were studying. So we focused on VILCAT, LCHAT, CPT2, and also trifunctional protein defect or TFP uh, uh, patients. As you know, TFP is very rare. We were only able to enroll actually two patients with TFP in the study. Um, and we had probably a few more VILCATs and CPT2s, but we had a good number, not that many of LCHAT patients as well. This was a study only for adults with the disease. And the reason we didn't enroll younger patients is because before you can enroll young patients, you need to complete a set of studies that are called the juvenile toxicology studies. Drugs may affect differently an adult individual where the tissues are not developing in comparison to a younger person where tissues are developing. And there are several tissues that we worry about in young people who are developing. For example, sexual organs that are not fully developed may be affected differently when you're growing up as to when, when you're an adult. Uh, or for example, bones and bone growth may be affected differently. If you're 25 years old and you stop growing, you, you know, a drug cannot affect your growth. But if you're younger and, and it affects your growth, you end up having a short statue and that could be problematic. So you need to complete, before you are allowed to do these type of studies in children, you have to complete what is called juvenile toxicology studies. And we had not completed that when we did this study. So we were not able to enroll children. So in this first study, we end up having a, a, a total of 24 patients. They were treated for 12 weeks. 
and a, a, a few patients, six of them completed before the pandemic started and the rest completed after the, the pand pandemic cooled off and, and patients were able to return uh, to the clinic. Initially, we had done a study, we had designed a study that was more comprehensive, but we realized that it was very, it was going to be very difficult to do a very labor intensive study if uh, when we returned from the pandemic. So we actually simplified the study so that we could enroll all the patients uh, more rapidly into the study when we returned from, you know, the, the big crisis of the pandemic. And um, it, what I can say about the study is that in general, Reno one was, was well tolerated. Uh, the, the, the adverse events or the side effects that we saw uh, were those that you commonly see in patients with 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 FAUD. In fact, we think these were most likely caused by the disease and not by the medicine. Like there were a few episodes of rhabdomyolysis, pain in the muscles, uh, and those are symptoms that patients experience very frequently with this disease. So the majority of the reported were mild to moderate in severity. And, and, and patients in general tolerated the medicine well. Now we did in this study, what we call a walk test and a way of testing whether a patient can engage in physical activities by doing these exercise tests. And we wanted to do a test that is relatively easy to do and doesn't require any equipment and can be done in all of the clinics with relative ease. So we chose what we call a 12-minute walk test, which is basically telling the patient, "You please walk, uh, you know, in this in this hallway around the circle, uh, you know, for 12 minutes. Try to do your best in walking as far as you can walk. Uh, if you have to stop, you can stop and rest. But if you if you sit down or you 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 stop, you know, and sit down, then the test is over. You can." stop, not walk, but you need to still be standing. And then just keep walking for 12 minutes and see how far we measure the meters of how far the patient can walk. And that gives us an idea of the physical capacity of the patient. This is a test that was actually developed many, many years ago. And it initially started as a test where people would run the 12 minutes. And it was used in the army to see how well fit new conscripts were coming into the army. And eventually doctors adapted this test to patients and they realized not everyone can run. So they switched it to just walking as fast as you can walk. Uh, so we did the, the, the walking test. We also did another test that is called the SF36, which is a test where you look at a, at a several questions that give you an idea of what is the quality of life of a patient. And in this SF36, there are several groups of questions that you can bunch together into what we call domains. And the main domain that we were interested in is the one that measures energy and fatigue in this questionnaire. And then we did a third test that is called the modified fatigue impact scale, which is a scale that measures whether you have fatigue in your life, whether you have tiredness in your life and how it affects your life. And that's a test that is often used in other diseases like chronic fatigue syndrome. So interestingly, what we noted, noted is not, that not all the patients responded equally in all of these tests. For example, when we looked at the, L -chat, the patients with LCHAT, we saw that uh, first at baseline, the patients with LCHAT were the ones that seemed to be more affected in the walk test the mean walk distance for the LCHAT patients was about more or less 550 meters. Now, a normal individual can usually walk about 1,300 meters. So this is almost one third, you know, a little bit more than one third of the distance that a normal individual can help, that a healthy person can help, can walk. So the LCHAT patients were only able to walk about 550 meters. In contrast, for example, the VILCAT patients were able to walk about 860 meters. 
And the, the CPT, the patients with CP2 were able to walk about 950 meters roughly. So the LCHAT patients were appeared to be more affected than the DILCAT patients and than the CPT2 patients. Now, after 12 weeks of treatment, that what we notice is that the patients with LCHAT improved the most. They improved by about 73 meters or 74, roughly 73 to 74 meters. Whereas the CPT2 patients improved by almost 52 meters. But the VILCAT patients did not improve in this test. And when we did the SF36, we saw the same thing. The LCHAT patients showed as a higher improvement in the in the in the in the domain or or the subscale for energy and fatigue, and we saw very little change in the CPT2s. And actually, the Vilcat patients reported that their symptoms were even a little worse. And the modified fatigue impact scale showed also a very nice improvement in the LCHAT patients and no improvements in the CPT2 and in the Vilcat patients. Now. Together with this study, we did another companion study that we thought would be very important to do, because as we were asking the experts, I am not an expert. You saw from my biography that my work has been mostly in immunology, and I'm not an expert in in, in fatty acid oxidation defects. So we spend a lot of time talking to experts and trying to learn about the disease. And one of the things we realized is that uh, there is a lot of information about these diseases in younger patients, because now that there is neonatal screening, many babies are being identified with the disease. But describing the adult patients was not that easy. And the problem with the descriptions we found is that often the descriptions were coming from a single center. So let's say that one doctor in France had a lot of patients and he or she followed those patients for a long time and reported on them. And the problem with doing that is that often the data is very related to what is happening locally. It's affected by the way the doctors treat the patients locally. It's affected by the genetic defects that may be present there that may not be present in other areas. So there is there, there could be what we call biases in the information that doesn't allow it to be generalized to the entire population of patients with the disease. So one of the things we decided to do was to do a study where we would just observe patients for 16 weeks without any intervention and see what happens to their tests and what happens to their disease during those 16 weeks. Now, in that particular study, um, we were able to enroll more patients. We were able to enroll, I think we enrolled about 58, between about 61 patients, but not all the patients had all the information and we were able to analyze about 58 patients. Uh, and there were, there, were, there were good numbers of patients with LCHAT, with uh, CPT2 and with VILCAT. In fact, in this study, we weren't able to find any patients with TFP that would enter into this study. But as you know, the LCHAT patients and the TFP patients have some similarities. So in the in, in this observational study, again, the, the most common uh, uh, side effects that we saw or problems that patients reported were similar to the ones we saw in our study. So rhabdomyolysis was the most common observation of problems that patients are having during the observation period. There were a few patients that actually, because we did that after the COVID pandemic started, there were five patients with COVID and the, uh, and the, the majority of the adverse events were also mild or moderate in severity. And none of them were caused by medicine because we didn't do any, give any medicine in this study. We just observed the patients for four months. Now, we also did the 12-minute walk test in that, in that study, and we did it before uh, the entering into the trial and then at month four. So interestingly, here you, you have numbers, because, and these numbers for the baseline results probably are more reliable 
than for the early study because the number of patients is larger. So for example, in this study, you remember that I mentioned that in the other study, the LCHAT patients were able to walk only 550 meters. In this study, the average was 720 meters roughly. But interestingly, you remember I mentioned that at, after 12 weeks of treatment, the patients improved by 73 meters. Now here, after four months of observation, the patients change only by 12 meters. So that gives you an idea. If you're not receiving any therapy, these patients improve by 12 meters. And then the question that people ask is, why would patients improve in the walk test? Shouldn't they get worse? Well, this is very common with walk tests. When you first do a walk test, you are afraid to do it because you don't know what it's expected to, of you. You don't know what 12 minutes are. And if you walk very fast, will you have a rhabdo event or will you will it complicate? So patients in the, the first time that they do a walk test, usually they are more careful. They, they walk a little slower than what they actually can do. And once they do the test one time, they plunge into doing it a little better the second time. So there is this, what we call learning effect that happens when patients do a walk test. So we expect always that when we do two walk tests, the second one will always be a little bit better. So the, the, the change in the LCHAT patient went from, you know, the patient started at 723 meters here and they went 12 meters more. So they improved, you know, to about 735 or so meters. But in contrast, in the previous study where we did give medicine, they started at 547, but they improved by 73 meters. So they went up to about, you know, almost, a, 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 I would say, 650 meters, 620 meters probably. Okay. Now, interestingly, the CPT2 patients only, they were all, they, they were at 888 meters. They were the ones that walked best. So we saw the same data here similar to what we saw before, but with slightly different numbers. The LCHAT patients were the ones that at baseline had the worst walk, 723 meters. The, then the, the, the VILCAT patients walked 818 meters and the CPT2 patients 888 meters, which is, you know, about 900 meters, let's say. So all well below the 1300 meters that a normal individual can typically walk. And the improvements that we saw were in the 11 to, 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 to up to 35 meters or so improvement. So, so uh, what we deduct from this is that at least in the LCHAT patients and in the CPT2 patients, the changes that we saw in the work test in the study may potentially be real, but it's not a fair comparison because we didn't do it in this at the same time by randomizing patients. So an, an analysis of this data, you have to be very careful when you, we have to be very careful when we analyze it. In the LCHAT patients, we also saw an improvement in the, in the, in the fatigue scale that was pretty sizable. And, uh, and we did not see much changes in the other tests in, in, in the patients. So overall, what we can say is that we think we saw a very good response in the patients with LCHAT and a, a, very, a, a, a very reasonable response in the patients with CPT2, we did not see as good a response in the patients with VILCAT. So what does this mean to, to all of us and to you as well? Well, first, the fact that we saw these responses suggests to us that the drug works, if not for all the patients, at least for a part of the patients. So we're committed to continue to do research in fatty acid oxidation defects to try to ensure that we can bring therapies to patients with fatty acid oxidation defects. And then the next question is, what do we do about the VILCAT patients where we did not see as good a response? So we're still working on this because if, if you think about it, the numbers of patients that we enrolled in these studies were very small. And it could be that we were unlucky that the patients that we entered into the trial happened to be patients that were having more problems that were more difficult to resolve. 
So before we give up on patients with VILCAD, I actually am considering or I am thinking that we should, at the very least, try to uh, uh, study a few more patients with VILCAD in the future as well. So what we're doing now is we're back to the drawing board. We're spending time thinking about how to do this at SSIEM. Uh, and probably, you know, SSIM is the Society of uh, uh, for uh, Inborn Errors of Metabolism, and it's, you know, the world meeting that happens every year, and all of the experts uh, in fatty acid oxidation will go there, because one day before SSIM starts, Dr. Buckley organizes a meeting for all the world experts on fatty acid oxidation, where all the new things about fatty acid oxidation are discussed. So, what I actually have done is I'm planning to be there and I have scheduled half an hour blocks to talk with all the experts. I'm basically going to be drinking, you know, decaf coffee all day long, talking to these experts at a chair, one by one, sharing the results with them, getting their thoughts and ideas about how they think we should move forward and trying to put everything together so that we can plan the best possible study in the future. So that's where we are right now. And um, I I, I think this gives you a good idea of where the fatty acid oxidation program is and how we're planning to move forward. At the same time we're doing this, we're also enrolling a very large study in patients with primary mitochondrial uh, myopathies we're planning to enroll 200 patients in that study. Um, uh, and, uh, and we are more than two thirds way in enrollment. And we're hoping that we will be able to complete enrollment by the end of the year or beginning of next year. And that will be the first large study where we will see if our drug worked in those patients as well. So we're very excited about the work we're doing. We think that Reno one can offer quite a bit of benefit to patients and and uh, uh, but we need to prove it with with the right clinical studies and and we're in the process of doing that so i'm going to stop here and see if if uh, there are quite i'm sure there are a few questions that we can answer thank you so much dr durenbaum that's amazing and i'm so excited you're going to be in germany and um be able to mingle with all of those doctors that's going to be absolutely fabulous yeah. Um, so there are lots of questions that are pouring in. So let me let me start with um, the first question. And she was asking, when might this drug be available to pediatric patients? And so I guess along with that, I'm wondering if you could expand a little bit and help us understand, like how long, like like what is the process? Like when do you think the next study would happen? And then like, how long normally does something like that take? And then once you get there, how long does it take to go to market? And, you know, like how, how does that process look on a timeline? So it's not, it's not a cookie cutter process. It's not, you know, it's not a process that gets applied in the same way to every patient and to every drug, but the FDA weights into it several things. First, how severe is the need for a therapy? Uh, Second, what alternatives of treatment are available to patients? And third, how vulnerable is that population? And fourth, what is the risk of the drug? So the problem with children is that children are like other vulnerable populations not able okay, often to make the decisions based on data that is presented to them to provide consent to participate in clinical trials. I, I, I think that it's not the same when you're treating a baby, for example, that cannot read an informed consent than a, let's say, 17-year-old that is still considered a pediatric patient, but it's almost an adult and sometimes I find 17-year-olds much smarter than me. So so, so I think they could possibly do this much better than me. So 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 it, it differs. It differs with, with with the disease and the necessity and the risk of the medicine. And PPARs are medicines that have what we call what I would call 
theoretical risks. And the problem with PPARs is, is, is it's a very tricky thing. The, the animals don't react very well to PPARs. And we always test these drugs in animals. And we, for example, see some toxicities in animals that we don't get to see in humans. So for instance, there is a PPAR in the market to treat diabetes that has a warning that it may cause cancer because they saw cancer tumors growing in rats. But the drug has been in the market for 30 years or 40 years, and it has never caused any tumors in, in humans. So the problem with these drugs is that there is concern about these drugs because the way they get tested in the laboratory doesn't really reflect well what actually happens in humans. So the FDA is particularly careful about PPARs. Um, and they, they, so when you have that situation, the FDA will want to know that there is a clear potential benefit to the pediatric population before they risk the pediatric population because the pop pediatric population cannot make the informed consent decision by themselves. I think that in adults is different. If I tell you, look, I'm going to use this drug, but it could cause tumors in you. You would understand that and you could make the decision whether you want to do it or not. But in a child, that is very difficult to do. We assume parents will make the best decisions for the children, but that's not always the case. And that's why, and I'm telling you not because I don't trust parents. I'm telling you because I am a parent. <laughs> I've made mistakes with my kids. And, and so I know that we all can make mistakes. So, so, so I think that um, to make it short, I, we are not going to be able to treat pediatric patients before we can see clearly that our drug can benefit adults. And, and that will take a while. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for, for starting this journey and being on this journey. It sounds like it's, it's a journey, but it's still a hopeful one for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so as we speak of a hopeful one, you mentioned that you, with the MCATers, that you didn't want to kind of group them in with the long chain fatty acids, that you wanted to keep them separate. Are you hopeful that this would be something potentially at some point you could test for the MCAD community or? Eventually, yes. Eventually, yes. But, you know, in clinical studies, the problem is that when you have a very broad population of patients that look very different one from each other, trying to find the results is very difficult. So you want to have as, as tight a population that looks similar mm -hmm. in your study because if we do a study and then we end up with more MCATs in one group than in the other, or it makes it very difficult uh, to, to balance the groups very well. But, but yes, I would expect, but again, it's also an issue of risk benefit because the MCAT patients tend to have less severe disease. You want to make sure that if this therapy is going to be given to them, it's a very safe therapy. So, yeah. And time, so far, by the way, we have not seen in our studies any safety signal of concern. So our hope is that the drug will show, prove to be very safe eh, eh, across the board, but, but, but we need to do the studies to demonstrate that. Yeah. I see some of the questions here. One of them says, um, would Longer exercise duration, but lower intensity testing make more sense for FAUTs like CPT2? The answer is absolutely yes. Yes. I actually, you see, the, when we started thinking about this study, you, you notice that I, I, I mentioned we're doing a 12-minute walk test. And let me explain why we chose the 12-minute walk test. We're trying to measure whether the mitochondria can produce enough energy. And the mitochondrial fatty oxidation doesn't happen very early when you start exercising or when you start physical activity. So when you start your physical activity, the, the cells use as a source of energy primarily something that is right there ready to be used. 
So like phosphocreatine, for example. So initially, when you start moving, your cells take the phosphocreatine and generate energy. The phosphocreatine only lasts there for a minute or two. So once the phosphocreatine comes down, your cells start breaking down within the cell glycogen, and they use it for the next four or five minutes. And about minute six or seven or up to eight is when the mitochondria start using now the fatty acids to generate energy. So typically, fatty acid oxidation as a source of energy for physical activity doesn't occur very early. It occurs around five to six minutes into exercise. And then that is what sustains long-term exercise. So you want to have that for long-term exercise. So doing a longer duration exercise test is very valuable or a better choice, in my opinion, for patients with fatty acid oxidation defects. Now, what kind of tests are available? So there is the 12-minute walk test that we're using that is not used frequently. Actually, people often use what is called a six-minute walk test instead, and they prefer to use it because you remember I mentioned that the 12-minute walk test was invented in the army, and that was with healthy volunteers, you know, young 18-year-old kids that were going into the army. So when the doctors started adapting this test for the clinic, they started doing it, for example, for older people with pulmonary and cardiac problems, like patients that had COPD. And these older patients had trouble walking the 12 minutes. So a doctor by the name of Botland did a study and he said, okay, let's do a 12-minute walk test, a six-minute walk test. And he actually also did a two-minute walk test and see if I get similar results with those tests. And what he found is that if you do this six-minute walk test, you get similar results to the 12-minute walk test. And even the two-minute walk test was relatively good. So he said, look, guys, you don't need to spend 12 minutes walking your patients. You can do it for six minutes. You get similar results, and you answer the question. But that applies to patients with other diseases. I actually think that in fatty acid oxidation, you do need that second part of the test because that's when the mitochondria are using the fatty acids. So I think that the 12-minute walk test is a better test. There is another test called the submaximal exercise test. And the submaximal exercise test is a longer duration test. It can last for 20, 30, or 40 minutes. And what you do there is, you do first what we call a maximal heart exercise test, which is you exercise as much as you can until your heart rate gets to the highest level it will ever get. You know, we all can exercise to some degree. And then when you get to that maximum, that's your maximum heart rate or peak exercise test. And that reflects how well you're using your oxygen to be able to do exercise. And that's a very valuable test. Well, submaximal exercise test is exercising at 60% of your maximum heart rate. So you don't bring your heart rate all the way to the top. You stay 60, at 60% and you keep going for a longer period. There are two problems with that test that I can think of in, in, in um, FAUD. First, when you do the submaximal, the maximal exercise test, you can cause injury to the muscle. And I worry about, you know, pushing too hard the patients with FAUD because they could end up having an acute rhabdomyolysis event. And then exercising for a longer time is likely to cause more muscle injury as well. So we did not want to do the longer test that probably would have been a, a good exercise to do because we thought it would have more risks associated with the study than if we did the 12-minute walk test that already captures, you know, oxidative phosphorylation in the second half of the test. That makes sense. That makes sense. Thank you so much for breaking that down. Is there any chance that after the conference that the other research institutions might be able to collaborate with you on this research? 
In fact, we're already collaborating with many of them. The patients that we enrolled in our trials come from multiple centers, and both in the U.S. and in Europe. And uh, I have to tell you, it has been very difficult to enroll patients in our studies after the COVID pandemic relaxed a little bit. I think many clinics still don't have full staff. And I think many patients don't feel comfortable going to the clinic. And this Zoom thing has turned into actually, I can tell you because I'm in clinic once a week. I used to see all my patients in follow-up in the clinic. Now, if I can do it by Zoom so that they don't have to come to the clinic and park in the hospital and pay extra money and travel and be hassled with that, I'm doing it by Zoom. So many patients are really getting accustomed, not coming into the clinic as often, and we're having more difficulty enrolling patients into our studies. So one of the things I want to plead to this group is you should push to participate in studies and push your doctors to take part in the studies as well, because that will help all of us accomplish the studies. And and I cannot promise that our drug will work, but what I want to at least accomplish is answering the question, you know, do the study, get the results, and then if it works, it'll be available. If it doesn't work, then we need to quickly move on to do something else to help the patients and not waste time. So I think it's very important to participate in clinical trials. Are you eligible for the study if you are taking vesofibrate or phenofibrate to reduce cholesterol? Well, vesofibrate and phenofibrate are in the family of PPARs. So you cannot be on two PPARs participating into the, stu- into the study. I, actually, I think vesofibrate and phenofibrate actually are probably, I I, I need to double check, but I think that vesofibrate and phenofibrate are, are, uh, one may be okay, the other is not, Uh, 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 but but, but, uh, uh, it's a matter of looking carefully. There are other options for lowering cholesterol that are allowable in the study, and a patient could switch to those to participate in the study if they wanted to. But one thing that would be important is to switch at least 30 days before onset of the trial, because you don't want to be having those changes right when you're coming in in the trial, because we won't know if the benefits or the problems were associated with a change in medicine or not. But this is something that we would be able to, to clarify very quickly. Were most of these adults in the study diagnosed at birth and on treatment their entire life, or were many diagnosed as adults and didn't have treatment for very long, and maybe some medical changes due to late diagnosis that may affect their performance on the walking test, for instance? That is a really excellent excellent question. Um, I think that because these patients are 18 years and older, most of them were not subject to neonatal screening, so they were probably diagnosed slightly later than you we diagnose patients today. Today, we really identify patients very quickly because of neonatal screening. And that is, in my mind, a blessing uh, that we are able to do that in, in the United States. Uh, but, but I think that, uh, that, that one of the problems with, you know, it's not so much in fatty acid oxidation defects, but there are there are complications that can happen related to the disease that could affect the way you walk that are not related to your lack of energy. Like if a patient, for example, had a, a fall and a fracture, or if a patient had a stroke, or if a patient had a, a, has cardiomyopathy and and you know affected the heart is very affected. Even if you improve the energetics of the muscles. That could the heart may not be able to meet the demand, but we excluded patients who had those complications in the trial, and we looked primarily for patients whose main problem was a lack of energy. It says here, does the FDA limit the setup the next phases of the trial could look into because of, of our small population? So development of medicines for large 
indications like diabetes or hypertension is a little different than development for drugs in rare diseases. And I, I have to tell you that all the, all, all, I get fed up with the FDA every other day, but I get fed up with them because of me, not because of them. I got, I believe that the FDA does a very good job. And I believe that what we hear in the news is all a, a politics that people are using, you know, to advance their own careers. But generally speaking, the FDA, when it comes to rare diseases, is very reasonable. And uh, they are very open to discussions. They're very open to helping us in the development. I can tell you that there are one or two times when I wanted to do something and the FDA told me, Dr. Donovan, please don't do this and focus on doing this other thing. And at first I couldn't understand why they were saying that. And it turned out that this was because, you know, I only see the drug I am developing. The FDA sees the drugs of everybody and they have seen a lot and they have ha they've had more experience than I do because at the same time, they're reviewing all the drugs, not only one, and they get to see the nitty gritty details of every single drug. So generally speaking, they are very helpful. And generally speaking, their experience is extremely important. On the other hand, it is a government organization and they are subject to, you know, query by the Congress. So the commissioner of the FDA is a very political guy, as you would imagine, and has to be very careful about all of that. And I understand that. And that's, you know, the, the, the unpleasant side of doing this kind of work. But I would say that the majority of people at the FDA that work there are extremely committed individuals who want to treat diseases and want to help people. So generally speaking, I, I, I think that, that uh, they are very open and they give us different breaks that they wouldn't give big companies when they are developing drugs for big people. There is one area where the FDA never compromises and it's on safety. And I understand that and I accept that. And I think it's okay that they do that. Um, could they move a little faster? Yes. Uh, it's very difficult to do the work they do. And it's very difficult to review documents uh, in the right way. And a mistake that they do could be very, very, have very serious consequences. So they usually take more time than we wish they would in reviewing things. But when they do their job, they do it, in my opinion, they do it well. Um, where, where are the studies taking place? Cost to families, is this drug in pill, powder, or liquid uh, form for the G-tube use? It, currently, it is in a capsule, and we are planning to have a tablet in the near future. Um, uh, the capsule, I, I assume, could be opened and put into a G-tube. Uh, the tablet could be crushed and put into a G-tube as well. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't see that as a problem. You, you could put it in the tube and flush it, and it would be probably okay. The studies were done in seven centers, four of them in the United States, three were in Europe. And um, uh, hopefully we will be able to expand to more centers for the next study, of course. Uh, the, uh, the, in all of our studies, we have incorporated what we call a concierge service. And that is a, like a travel agency that treats patients like almost like royalty. And, and we think it's very important. Look, we do it, we do it not because we're nice people. We do it because it's important to do it. Um, we're also nice people, but, but, <laughs> but we do it mainly because it's important. Um, I don't want you to be hustling through an airplane or a car or a bus or a taxi cab and struggle to get to the clinic because by the time you get there, you will be having an acute rhabdomyolysis event. So what we do is we actually have a concierge that if, if, if you don't have the ability to, to have someone at home bring you over, 
we will send a car to pick you up and we will place you in an hotel the night before so that you can be rested when you come to the clinic and do the exercise tests well. So, so we're very com- aware of the limitations that patients with FAUD have. And we've organized in all of our trials this concierge service that offers the, you, you know, the service of helping with transportation and lodging for a patient and, the, and, and another person to help them when they come to the clinic. Um, does citrate synthase activity increase with ren one Also, thanks for taking the time to do this talk. Oh, they, uh, no, my pleasure doing this. Citrate synthase is a very interesting enzyme. It's the first enzyme, uh, well, it's very difficult to call anything a first enzyme in a circle. And, the, you know, the 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 Krebs cycle. It's a cycle of where we generate energy. So, but it's a you have every time you go around the circle in 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 the Krebs cycle, you have to go to citrate synthase. So people have said that if you have a lot of activity with citrate synthase, it means you have better, more mitochondria in your body. And and the problem is that these measurements are not very accurate and very difficult to interpret. I have thought about using citrate synthase as a measure of whether we're improving the number of mitochondria in the cell because our drug could potentially activate the generation of new mitochondria in the cell. But when I talk to the experts, they tell me that they don't trust this test and that it's very difficult to interpret. So so we're not using it. So I can't answer the, 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 the question because we haven't measured it. Um, if you do well on Reno one in the study, can you continue on Reno one on a compassionate use basis? Uh, absolutely. A compassionate program should be, again, it's an all uh, an, an issue of risk benefit. I think that if ha- if we have undoubtful evidence that the drug is helping patients, it would be in our in everybody's interest to start a compassionate program and treat uh, patients longer. PPARs in the US are limited for by the FDA. And uh, uh, the problem is that the FDA has concerns that treatment for long periods of time could have higher risks. So there are some studies that the FDA requires that you do before they can allow you to treat for longer than six months. In Europe, we're allowed to treat for longer than six months. But in the U.S., we're only allowed to treat up to six months. We've completed the studies that the FDA needs to allow us to treat longer. But the FDA has to review them, and we have to submit those to them. We just finished those the, the treatment of the animals. Now we need to put together all that data and submit it to the FDA once the FDA reviews that data, they may give us permission to treat longer than six months. And then a compassionate program may be more feasible at that time. So we, we have some limitations in doing a, a expanded access in the U.S. And, um, and um, uh, we're hoping that that will be solved as soon as we submit uh, our newest data to the FDA for review. If you have one deletion and one alteration in your gene, do you think your deletion will make the drug not work as well? Or is this something that is still being evaluated? Well, I don't have the right answer for this, but what I can tell you is in primary mitochondrial myopathy is a a slightly different disease because in primary mitochondrial myopathy, the, the patients may have genetic defects, both in the genes in the nucleus like is the case for all the patients with with fatty acid oxidation, but they also can have defects in the genes in the mitochondria. I don't know if you've heard, you know, in the news and uh, uh, or, or 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 when you watch forensic files, they often do what they they they, they do mitochondrial DNA studies. That is because the mitochondria themselves have about twenty some genes of their own that can be affected as well, and that have nothing to do with the nuclear genes, the genes in the cell. So when you have a defect in the, in the mitochondrial genes, 
Interestingly, you end up having in you one cell, both normal and mutated mitochondria. And we actually think that in patients who have normal mitochondria, the drug will also work by increasing the function of the normal mitochondria. So yes, I think it could work in those patients. What would a realistic timing be for the next phase? Well, so a realistic timing, what we are telling publicly is that this year we will spend this year planning and discussing the next study with the regulatory agencies because we're going to do, we envision a larger study it will need to be done both in the U.S. and in Europe. So we will need to talk not only to the FDA, but to the same organizations like the FDA, but in those other countries. And that's going to take the good part of this year. So we anticipate that the beginning of this study may be sometime in the middle of next year or in between the, the end of the first quarter and the middle of next year. All right, Dr. Durenbaum, we thank you so much for joining us and sharing and all of the research that you do. It's absolutely amazing. And um, we just really, really appreciate your time. We know we're hitting about eight o'clock here. So um, I see a lot of thanks coming through the chat and stuff. Um, but we're going to we're going to end there because we want to respect your time. But thank you so much for sharing and for coming on tonight and answering our questions and for um, doing the next step and, and, and taking this year to figure out, um, where the study is going to be and, and go and move forward. We're really excited to see that. Thank you very much. Thank you. And if there's any way that we can continue and get the word out there for, for you, let us know. And we'll, we'll try to help with that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for everyone who was able to come tonight. And um, if you know friends that really wanted to see this and weren't able to join, please let them know that it will be recorded and posted here in a couple of days. So um, thank you so much. And we will talk soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.